All right, you can open up to Genesis chapter 12. It's in the beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapter 12. We're going to um, open up a, a new series in Genesis um, this morning. Uh, but not all of Genesis, just the second half of Genesis. So Genesis chapter 12. Um, let's pray together. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this morning we've gathered together. Um, Lord, I, I pray that this message would be encouraging and sharpening and shaping and convicting and penetrating even for any student here that perhaps has asked you to grow them, to, to build in them true qualities of grace to strengthen and grow their faith, to conform them into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that this message would be encouraging to that end and also uh, revealing in, in how you go about that wise work that is sanctifying us into the image of Christ. We pray this all in his name, asking for your help in his name. Amen. Uh, what if I was to tell you, what if I was to tell you that your entire life, especially the hard parts, the painful parts, the confusing parts, the troubling parts, the discouraging parts, the anxious parts, were expressions of the wisdom of God? in your life? What if I was to tell you uh, that, that your difficulties in life might actually be the consequence of you being in Christ and, and God wanting to do a wise work inside of you? What if I was to tell you that? What if I was to tell you that, that your God is intending something in your life, and even the difficulties of your life, and the, the waiting uh, periods of your life. Your God is intending to do something in you. Perhaps you would answer um, me with, well, God doesn't seem all that wise then. God's ways don't seem all that sharp to me. If, if this life is an expression of the wisdom of God. I'm having trouble trusting in the goodness of God's wisdom for my life. Maybe your life isn't that hard. Maybe it's not that difficult. Maybe you can easily wrap your mind around that. But there will come a day when you will face trouble or you'll have to wait for something, or you'll be disappointed by something, or you'll find yourself confronted by your own sins or your weaknesses. And then hopefully this message will be encouraging and comforting to you. What do we mean when we say that God is omniscient? Now, maybe some of you have never heard that word before, omniscient. But omniscience is a, a word we use to describe an attribute of God. Omniscience means God is all-wise, all-knowing. God knows everything. He is he is all-wise. The, the Bible tells us over and over again that God is all-wise. Matter of fact, you can, you can look all over in your Bible and see this description of God as a very wise God. What does that mean to you that God is all-wise? 
Does that encourage you? Have you ever thought about the fact that God is 100% wise? He is the truly only wise one in comparison to all others. God is all wise. What does that mean to you and to your little, you know, seventh grade life following God or seeking to follow God? I think it means huge things. It means huge things for your suffering, for your pain, for your trouble, for your problems, to know that God is all wise. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does that mean? It means God is the ultimate source of wisdom. And only by rightly relating to God, having a right attitude and posture towards God, do you actually start to gain wisdom. Wisdom comes from God. Or you see it in James 1 verse 5, where it says, Hey, do any of you lack wisdom? You should ask God who gives wisdom abundantly. What does that tell you? That tells you that wisdom is from God. But what does that tell you about God? That tells you that God is the source of wisdom. God is infinitely wise. God is endlessly wise. God is wholly wise, fully wise, all wise. Isaiah 40, 28 says this about God. His understanding is unsearchable. It is endless. It is infinite. We don't always see his wisdom at work, but it is always at work in our lives. Or Psalm 147, which uh, brings God's people great comfort. Uh, 147 verse 5 brings God's people comfort in in the fact that he's going to restore Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, but it grounds it in, in some assurances of who God is. And one of those assurances is this, he is abundant in power, his discernment is infinite. Once again, we see this idea of of God being being total in his wisdom and how he acts in this world. Or I love, one of my favorite uh, phrases about God is Romans 16, 27. He is the only wise God. He, he acts in such a way that when, when you reflect on what he has done, you can only conclude he is the only wise one. All other beings are foolish in comparison to God. He is wise. Now, what does it mean to be wise? Now, perhaps some of you have an idea of what it means to be wise. Perhaps you're saying, hey, I know a couple wise guys in my life. They know a lot of stuff, right? Wise, maybe, maybe you're thinking of somebody like Einstein. Or maybe you're thinking of someone like Elon, Elon Musk, right? Really a wise guy. He knows a lot of things. He's really smart. He's really sharp. But actually, when the Bible talks about wisdom... It doesn't just mean that you have a lot of facts about this world and how it works. Now, that is true about God. God is all-knowing. He knows everything. But, But when the Bible talks about wisdom, it's saying something more than just knowledge. It's, it's talking about skill. It's talking about understanding. It's it's not just knowing facts. It's having a relationship with facts and knowing how to use facts. That's that's wisdom. God possesses wisdom, God's Word tells us. What does that mean? He is skillful. He has ability. In the the Old Testament, it it sometimes describes uh, construction workers working on the temple as people whom God has given wisdom for the work. They have great skill, ability. They have wisdom. 
because they know how to use this tool to to create something beautiful and glorious. They have great wisdom and skill. Maybe we talk about somebody who is very skilled in a sport. They've got great wisdom in this sport. God has great wisdom. God has great skill. And, and, and when we say God has wisdom, we not only say that he knows all things and does all things well, but he also has the power to do all things well, according to his plan. Or, or just, here, let me just give you a few, just, just a few thoughts about God's wisdom towards you. And, and this series is titled, Wise Toward You. What, is, what am I talking about there? Well, number one, God's wisdom tells you that God is wise towards you. God not only knows everything and has skill with all of the information that he knows, but that wisdom is now directed, that knowledge is now directed at you. Have you ever thought about the fact that God knows you perfectly? God knows you through and through. One of my favorite Psalms, 139, right? He knows when I sit, when I stand. He knows when I lie down. He he knows what I'm going to say before I even know it myself. Before I can even show up at a location, he's already there waiting for me, like, you know, the empire, when I jump out of light speed. He's already there. He knows me totally. He has total knowledge towards me. And God also has total wisdom towards me. He not only knows me well, he knows exactly what I am like. He knows all of my weaknesses. He he knows... He knows where where I fail him the most. He knows where I need to be strengthened the most. God is wise towards me. But also, if God is ultimate in wisdom, if if God is infinite in wisdom, if, if God always has the ability to not only know all things, but also choose the best things, what does that also mean? God not only is wise towards me, he is also wise towards what is best for me. You ever think about that? God knows what is best towards for me. God knows what I most need most, or what I most need in my life. God knows the end that will bring me maximum satisfaction in life. God is wise towards what's best towards me. But also, God is also wise towards me in that he is able to bring about his best plan for me. That's what, that's what God is. He's wise towards me. He's wise towards what's best towards me. He's wise towards what will bring about what's best for me as well. God doesn't just know a lot about you. He also knows what is best for you, and he knows exactly how to bring about what's best for you. God is wise towards you, and that's very encouraging if you are his child That God knows exactly how to bring about what's best for you. God knows what you need in your life to be sanctified for his glory. What you need perhaps is different than what your neighbor needs, or what your sibling needs, or what your parents need. But what you need, God knows perfectly, thoroughly, and God has actually orchestrated the events of your life, dear believer, to bring about his best ends towards you. Because God is wise toward you. He has skill. He has aptitude. 
his ability. I'm going to read a, a few just uh, just a few theological definitions of God's wisdom and see if you can tell what I've been saying this whole entire time. This one comes from uh, Wayne Grudem's Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. He describes God's wisdom this way: God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and the best means of those goals. So think about that in your life, right? God says, this is the best goal for that person's life. And God also has wisdom and skill in choosing the best means to put into your life to bring about that goal. God's wisdom means God always, always chooses the best goals and the best means of those goals. Just, just wrap your mind around that idea of always even. You could say, in a sense, everything in my life, if I am a believer, is an expression of the wisdom of God. Even the hard parts of my life, the parts I don't understand totally, are an expression of the wisdom of God. Or John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew say this in their, in their biblical doctrine book, God's wisdom is his perfect knowledge of how to act skillfully. God's wisdom is his perfect knowledge of how to act skillfully so that he will accomplish all his good pleasure, which is essentially to glorify himself. That was a packed thing as well. God's wisdom is his perfect knowledge of how to act skillfully so that he will accomplish all his good pleasure. God acts towards you skillfully. Why? For what purpose? For what results? To accomplish his good pleasure. And I'm giving it away a little bit there, and even reading that quote. What's his good pleasure for you? What's the best for you? God's glory. In one sense, God's glory. Just consider those things. Now this, I would say, runs a little bit contrary to popular misconceptions about our God, right? Some people have a few popular misconceptions. Let me just give you a little title for these misconceptions of our God and see if maybe your theology maybe is a little leaky in this way. You may not be a total heretic like these people, but maybe you're close to a heretic like these people. <clears throat> Exhibit A, misconception. God, uh, the goodly old man upstairs. The goodly old man upstairs who means well, wants well for you, would like it if it happened well for you, but has no ability to actually bring it to pass. Has no actual strength to change, to control, to sovereignly superintend the events of your life to bring about his good will. And no, that, that description of God is, is lacking too. It's just what he thinks is best. This isn't, that isn't a view of God that actually gets your mind around the idea that, hey, if God is infinite, if God is perfect, then he brings that perfect nature into all that he does, including his wisdom, which means his will and his way towards me is infinitely skillful. Now he's just a goodly old man that means well but can't do anything about it. Or how about exhibit B? <laughs> He's a, a red dude throwing things. Now, maybe you need a little bit of help understanding this uh, view of God. He's just an angry thing, a red dude in heaven throwing things in his anger. He has no infinite skill, no plan. He's just mad all the time. And that's why he's sending trouble your way, because he's mad. That's a view of God that maybe sneaks in. 
to our view of him sometimes. Matter of fact, I've been I've been reading a little bit of uh, kind of like uh, ancient uh, ancient Near East kind of religious views, and all of their gods, they're always one of the two of these. They're either goodly old people that cannot do anything, or they're just grumpy old men upstairs angry at you because you're causing too much noise. Matter of fact, uh, one view of the creation account. And, and, and the fall of man and sin. You know what the sin was that got the gods all mad and angry at you? The, the earth was overcrowded and it was annoying. The noise of all, God's pe- or all the people on earth were getting so loud that the gods got angry and caused a flood to come. Right? right? So there's lots of weird views of God. And it's always, there's always a limit to God. The, 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 the gods made in the image of man are limited and look a lot more like us. They never consider God as an infinite perfect being. Here's my simple argument. Here's my simple argument for today and for this kind of series that we're starting. And I've kind of already said it, but just hear it again. God has the best aims for you. And God has the best ways for you. God has the best aims for you, and he has the best ways of bringing about those aims for you. Now, perhaps some of you hear that thought and you're like, well, that sounds great, but that doesn't seem like the God that is in control over my life. It doesn't seem like he has the best aim, and it doesn't seem like he has the best ways. Because my life doesn't seem to be going anywhere special, anywhere soon. Well, I would say to you, perhaps your aims and, and your views of what good ways would be for those aims are different than God's aims and God's ways. Perhaps, perhaps you are focused on what will make me happy now. What will make me comfortable now. And perhaps God is focused on what will make you holy now. And what will make you holy in the future. And what will make you conformed even now and in the future to the image of his son. Perhaps that's God's aim. That you be conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And perhaps he chooses means that are uncomfortable and difficult and troubling because he's not about your happiness, he's about your holiness. And he has perfect skill in pursuing these things. Here's, here's a question. What is God's aim? When, when I say that God has the best aims for you, when I say God has the, the, the best uh, the best idea of, of what will bring you maximum satisfaction and joy in your life. What, what am I talking about? Best aims. What are God's aims for you? Aims for you. Here's, here's three. Here's God's aim. Your separation from sin. Your unhappiness is because of sin in this life. Your maximum joy and satisfaction are when you are separated from sin. Or how about this? God's aim for you. Number two, God wants you to participate in his mission on earth. God wants you to participate in the spread of the gospel on earth. That's God's aim for you. 
That would explain why God is doing what he is doing in your life, perhaps, if there's something difficult happening. He actually has an aim that you will be a participant in the spread of his good gospel of his son. God wants your separation from sin. God wants your participation in his mission. Or how about this? God wants your gladness in your right relationship with him. That's kind of what we've already said with separation from sin. But ultimately, what God is shooting for is your gladness in right relationship with him. There's there's this book that I read sometimes with people. And if you've ever read a book with me, you, you, you know exactly what happens, right? Every week, every chapter is my favorite chapter and my favorite week. It's just, it's just the way I am. The chapter I'm reading just happens to be my favorite chapter, and the book I'm reading just happens to be my favorite book. I'm a, I'm a very content individual. Some of you need to work on your contentment. Maybe, maybe. But it is really one of my favorite books, and, and I'll, I'll be honest, I'm kind of stealing much of this message from that book, because it's so encouraging to me. It's from the book Knowing God, and the chapter is God Only Wise, and it's so encouraging. And, and Packer, J.I. Packer, who writes that book, writes this about God's end goal, the end goal that he's shooting for in people. He brings them into a state in which they please him entirely and praise him adequately, a state in which he is all in all to them, and he and they rejoice continually in the knowledge of each other's love, people rejoicing in the saving love of God set upon them from all eternity, and God rejoicing in the responsive love of people drawn out of them by grace through the gospel. Now, maybe some of you didn't catch that, right? But that's God's aim, that we mutually rejoice and have joy in one another. Your greatest joy is in a right relationship with God, and that will explain why God puts trouble in your life if you are a believer. God's aim is your right relationship with Him. Now, that's God's aim, that's what He's aiming for, but what are the ways that He uses, that He skillfully uses to seek these aims in your life? What are the means of this aim that he skillfully uses? Well, I want to demonstrate just uh, maybe three, three ways that, that God pursues these things. But I don't want to just, just give them to you now. This is kind of just a, a setup for hopefully messages to come where we kind of dig into this a little bit more. But I want to give you three kind of ways God pursues his all-wise aims for you. And we'll look at this through three, through three like biographies that will follow. Three characters of the Bible that you may be very familiar with and are very encouraging when we think about God's skillful wisdom towards them. But I'll give you the answer straight out. What is God, what is God doing? What are God's ways? He is, he is going to seek to grow you, to ruin you, and to shape you. He's going to seek to grow you, to ruin you, and to shape you. Who are the people that we're going to learn these lessons from? Well, they're little friends of mine that I have given nicknames to so that nobody knows what I'm talking about in the email. Uh, But it's Abe the Babe, Jake the Snake, and Jojo Jr. Jojo Jr. spelled with an E, people. It's not a girl, it's a guy. Jojo 
Jr. So let's let's just dig at it really quick. Here you're in uh, Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. I want to in- introduce you to a character that displays God's infinite wisdom, and his name is Abe the Babe. Although you perhaps know him more as Abraham or Abram, but I like the name Abe the Babe, and hopefully you'll figure out why real soon. Now, what was Abe's real problem? You may say, I know what Abe's problem was. His wife was barren, couldn't have any kids. And that was kind of like the retirement program of the day. Without kids, you're kind of like homeless when you can no longer work. That seemed like his problem. But his real problem, Abe's real problem, was not that he was a sonless father, but that he was a person of faith with a small God. That he had a small God as the object of his faith. And so God worked mysteriously and patiently and wisely in the life of Abe to grow his faith. God wisely orchestrates Abraham's life to grow him up in the faith. That's why I refer to him as Abe the babe. He is actually a baby in the faith and God grows him to full-grown maturity. Now, I would say, if we were to describe um, Abe's faith early on in his life, it was this. This, this, was, this was Abraham's, or Abe's, basic view of God. Uh, it was this. I am fairly convinced that God is able to do pretty close to what he has promised to do. That was Abraham's small faith. I am fairly convinced that God is able to get pretty close to what he has promised in his word. And if you look at Abe's life, you you see this, right? Uh, God makes a promise to Abraham and, and calls him to obedience. Genesis 12, verse 1, Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham, or Abram, went forth as Yahweh had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now notice, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now notice there's, there's a lot of great examples of faith here, and Abe even shows great examples of faith here. He hears God's promises, and he follows, and he believes. But I would suggest to you that Abe's faith is very small at this moment. His faith is saying, sounds pretty good to me. I actually don't have much else happening right now because... As the narrator just told you, my wife's barren, so I might as well try what you're calling me to. And 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 I figure God can do this. God can make a a great nation out of me somehow, right? And and you see how how Abraham slowly works through his his view of how God's going to do this. Maybe God's going to do this through my nephew Lot. Maybe I'll inherit uh, all of my promises through him, and God will make a great nation through him. No. Maybe God will use my servant and make a great nation out of him. No. Maybe God will use my wife's slave and I can have a son through her. God, all God is is just pretty close. Pretty close to what he's promised. But how does God wisely work towards Abe the babe? 
God moves slow and removes any other explanation than the power of God to do miracles in his life. So that Abe's faith grows to the point where it is described by the Apostle Paul in Romans 4 verse 21. This is a description of faith. The mature faith that God has worked towards slowly, slowly to show Abram the full power of his God. What was Abram's faith? What is mature faith? Faith does this. Faith is, Romans 4.21, fully convinced that God is able to do what he's promised. That's what faith is. And that's how God wants to grow faith. He wants to grow you in the conviction that you can be fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. Now, I zoomed through the life of Abram. We skipped all this stuff about Isaac, about Sodom and Gomorrah, but hopefully we'll get to that. But I just want to present to you just a few applications that you can already take away from Abe the babe and God's wise work towards Abe. First, first thing, growing up in the faith, growing in, in your faith means re- inquiring knowledge or, or acquiring knowledge about your God, increasing in knowledge. Abram grows in his faith as he gives glory to God, Romans 4 tells us. He, he grows in his faith as he begins to learn just what kind of God he's following. Maybe your faith is weak because you don't know your God very well. The more you know your God, the greater your faith can be. Or how about this application from Abe the Babe? Grown-up faith isn't just knowledge, isn't just knowing things about God, though, or, or even or even believing certain things about God. True grown-up faith is acting like that is true. That's what we see in, in Abe. We see a man who goes from believing that God is able to do close enough to what he has promised, to being fully convinced that God is able to do everything that he's promised, and actually acting like that is true. He is at the point with Isaac, his son, where he's ready to sacrifice him to obey God. And he is convinced that God will raise up my son if he has to. It's not just knowledge about God, but it's actual knowledge about God that changes the way you act. That is true grown-up faith. So, uh, first application, uh, growing up in the faith does inquire or require knowledge growing in the knowledge of God. But number two, true grown-up faith not only just believes things, knows things, but acts like those things are true. But a, a third a third little application we can make from Abe, it's encouraging. Abe is an encouraging example because we see even the smallest faith, even the most imperfect of faith in such a great God actually is a great faith. When does God declare Abram righteous? Not when he was at the very end, when he had finally passed all of these faith tests, but in the very beginning when he was simply believing God's word, even in his imperfect way. And believe it or not, that's exactly how you believe the gospel. And you believe tremendous things in even a small form in your beginning years as a Christian. And that's very encouraging, because even the smallest faith in the biggest God is greater than the greatest faith in the smallest God. And even if you have a small faith in this big God, it is a great faith indeed. 
So God wisely works in Abe the babe to grow your faith in his promises. God will actively work in your life to grow your faith in him. That's what you learn from Abe. That's what you learn from God's wise dealing with Abe. Let's move really quick to Jake the snake. Jake the snake. What do we learn from Jake the snake? Well, Jake's problem, Jacob, you may know him as, Jake's problem was basically that he was a mama's boy, and they jerk about it. He liked being home. He liked the comfortable things of life. He, he was born to Isaac, the son of Abraham, and very early on, he discovered that he could use great skill. He was very smart and very sharp, and he could find ways to escape hardship and pain. Matter of fact, he could steal blessings from his older brother Esau. Now, Esau had a slogan, had a great slogan in his life. Why do something, this was Esau's slogan, why do something the easy way when you could do it the manly way? That was Esau in a nutshell. I just want to be manly. Now, Jacob's slogan was was very different than this. I can use wisdom and skill to remove all pain and all discomfort from my life. That's why we call him Jake the Snake. Because he snaked his way around, getting all of the good things and cheating all of his friends and family members out of all their things. And he made his life easy because he was skilled. He was a snake. But how did God work wisely in Jake the Snake's life? Well, he cornered him. He brought him to the point where even with all of his wisdom and all of his skill, he realized, I can't do it. I cannot save myself from my trouble. And sometimes this is how God, I would say, works in our life. He sometimes allows us to fail again and again and again so that we realize how undependable we are. Jake's problem was that he was a mama's boy, but what was his real problem? His real problem was that he was far too in love with Jake the snake. He was far too dependent on himself and on his own skill and cunning to get him through in life. He actually believed, because of how sneaky I am, I can avoid all problems. But God sends problems his way in order to corner him. And actually, at the end of his life, God cripples him. And Jake is limping for the rest of his life so that he will never forget, I need God with every step. That's Jake the snake. Here's a lesson about how God wisely works. In in Abe the babe, we saw that God works to grow you in your faith. But what do we learn in Jake the snake? We see that sometimes God wisely works in your life to destroy your love and your dependence on you. Are you ready for that? God wisely works to ruin your love of yourself. That's Jake the snake. How about Jojo Jr.? Well, Jojo Jr. goes by the more popular name, Joseph. Joseph, he was one of 12 sons born to Jake the Snake. And it seemed like Joe had a problem, right? His, his problem was giftedness. His problem was skill. He was really good at organizing things. He really, was really good, according to VeggieTales, at keeping his sock drawer very organized and uh, very clean. But his real problem... His real problem was not just that he was, uh, you know, daddy's favorite son, 
who wore the, the coat of many colors or the coat of long sleeves and was given all of the kind of managerial responsibilities over his older brothers. His, his real problem, I would say, is that he did not have a heart to serve God with his giftedness. He had many skills for God, but not the right kind of heart and vision of God to be useful to God and God's purposes. What is, what is, how does God wisely work towards Jojo Jr.? Well, he sends pain and tears and problems his way, but he does all of this to shape Joe into becoming a greater servant of his ministry. Right? What, what, what happened in the life of Jojo Jr.? God sends him to a pit from the sin of his brother, to slavery in Potiphar's house, to being a prime minister in Pharaoh's house, to then being, to then being humbler. It's, it's, no, sorry. He goes from Potiphar's house to prison, to then being the prime minister in all of Pharaoh's house. Why does God put him through all of this trouble? Well, you'll notice at the end of Joe's life that he has a vision of God like none other. He can see God's wise working in all things. And he now has the right kind of heart to serve God. Because he is, he is humble. He, he is not just serving God because he's good at it. He's serving God because he sees God's sovereign hand in his life. And perhaps that is the end for which God wants you to trust his wisdom. God is working in me to make me a better servant of him. And maybe I don't totally see how. But God will work in me through this trouble. So let me just suggest to you, suggest to you, that God's wisdom towards his believers always has his best aims and always uses the best ways to bring about these aims. He will do this to grow you through your view of him and your trust of him. He will do this to gut you of your love and dependence on yourself. And he will do this to grab you, to put you in a place, a more humble place that serves him in the future. That is God's infinite wisdom on display. Once again, if if we were to choose God's life for us, we would choose an easier track. But God's infinite wisdom chooses the best way, the way that we need most. Two, be maximally satisfied in his glory and in a joyous relationship with him. That is the promise that the believer has. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this morning, just to kind of get our feet wet with these characters. And we we pray that we would be able to understand them and learn from you and learn from your infinite wisdom through them. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.